Phil Hay Show. Welcome to the show. This athletic podcast brought to you in association with the Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan. Phil's here too. Hi, Phil. Hello. And from the Square Ball, Michael Normanson. Hello. And Moscow White. Daniel Chapman. Hello. 90-day free trial up for grabs right now at theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. Take advantage of that. Have a read of all the stuff that Phil's been writing about, some of which you're going to hear about in this show. Uh, First thing to touch on this week, though, Phil, uh, because it happened just after the show was released or recorded rather last week, is the passing of Trevor Cherry. Yeah, and the the second bit of bad news we've had in in a very short period of time um, after Norman Hunter. When I think of Trevor Cherry, I I think of the guys who came into that dressing room and and into the established team that Don Revy created after it had kind of got moving and after the momentum had had got behind it. And I've always had a lot of respect for Mick Jones, Alan Clark, and, and more latterly Trevor Cherry for being able to integrate themselves into what was you know, rapidly becoming one of the best teams in the country and one of the best teams in Europe and managing to find a place in a dressing room which, you know, no kind of average player was going to walk into and, and be well respected. I went to do an interview with Mick Jones a couple of years back and he said that that was probably his biggest concern going to Leeds was, you know, how he was going to be accepted and, and how he was going to fit in and, and whether the, the players who'd been there for a long time would, would feel that he was one of them. And I think it was somebody like Alan Clark who's far more inner confidence and, and he never worried about that. But again, with Trevor Cherry, you had somebody who you know was coming in in kind of early seventies and had done very well at Huddersfield, won a title there. But equally, was joining a side who were a hundred percent at the peak and was playing in positions like left back, where they'd had Terry Cooper and where they'd been you know brilliantly served by him. But actually, by all accounts, and you know to speak to anybody who knew him, felt that he was absolutely of the standard that Reeby needed. He was absolutely deserving of the honours um, that he won at Leeds, and you know absolutely deserving of a place in that run to the European final. And it's another big loss for the club, but not only for Leeds for. for for Huddersfield as well and, and for Bradford City where, where obviously he won the third division title as a manager as as well a, a lovely guy and, and in the end very well decorated Did you manage to speak to him at all much around the centenary celebrations Phil is he somebody you've met? He is somebody I've met somebody I'd, I'd spoken to I didn't meet him around the, the centenary um, week at all I bumped into plenty of the other former players but he was always on the scene he was always accessible he, he always liked to have an opinion about Leeds and, and he was pretty forthright with it as well he would say what he thought I think like a lot of the Reavy boys there have been periods particularly over the past 10, 15 years where he, he was frustrated by what was going on at Leeds and he was less than impressed by the, the management of the club and the ownership of the club and I'm absolutely certain he would have put himself down as another one who was desperate to see them back as a Premier League side, desperate to see them competing with the teams that he was used to playing against when he was a player. And again, he'll, he'll be missed. I think, you know, he, he falls slightly below Hunter in, in the list of Ellen Road legends because Hunter is is virtually untouchable, save but for perhaps three or four or five other players who've, who've been through Ellen Road in a hundred years. But everybody says that, that Cherry is right up there. Um, and I think as, as an England international as well, achieved great things in his career and, and deserves the, the respect that he has. Do we know for the benefit of anybody who's a little bit too young to have seen him play what he was like as a footballer? I think all of us are too young to have seen him play in person, but from all the highlights clips I've seen of him and everything I've read, I think the famous goal against Manchester City probably sums him up in that it's not a a great goal by any means. Is He gets into the box on the end of a, a knockdown and the pitch is terrible and it's the 1970s and it's the FA Cup and the stadium's full and his first attempt at shooting is blocked. But then everybody's in the mud and it's a race between Trevor Cherry, the goalkeeper, and a defender as to who gets the ball first. And Cherry up out of the mud, through the penalty area, to the ball, sticks it in the net. And again, it's one of those games from a a period. Leeds fans always look on the best side of the worst times. I don't think anybody would say the end of the 70s was a great time for Leeds United. But that game sticks out as a, a moment that everybody there has not forgotten for the celebrations and the, uh, and the, the feeling that perhaps Leeds were going to do it that year. And it was all summed up by just the captain of the club he would have been then, dragging himself towards the ball, putting himself where others would, would fear to get hurt and scoring a goal. And there was something about the footage then when he, there's about five minutes to go in that game and he gets back to um, cheering up the rest of the team to make sure they don't let this lead slip. And you could sort of tell this is somebody who'd grown up under the influ- under the wing of Norman Hunter, under the influence of Billy Bremner. Um, and we mentioned on the other podcast, there's only Billy Bremner 
captained more Leeds United games than Trevor Cherry, and I think that does, although he doesn't have the standing of a of a Norman Hunter or a, a Jack Charlton or or one of the players who were uh, absolutely smack bang in the middle of the glory days. He does have his own claims to greatness. I think because he was the one who replaced Bremner as captain and because when you speak to people about that, um, everybody feels that he was a very adequate replacement and a very good replacement. That tells you a lot about both his his kind of mental aptitude, but also his, his quality as a player. He, he was a very versatile defender, um, but predominantly a left back. And, and the, you know, the, the most famous stories about him, aside from the, the Manchester City goal, were the appearances against Johan Cruyff in the European Cup. He, he marked him in both legs of the semi-final against Barcelona and, and did a great job and extremely disciplined defender and someone who I think was good enough and hard enough as well to slip into that Leeds team without him looking out of place and without you know somebody like Terry Cooper being being as badly missed as he should have been for the the quality of player that he was and, and I suspect when you know when it comes to to reviewing that era and, and reviewing that team he's probably a name that gets a little bit lost in, in the discussions about the bigger profiles the bigger reputations the guys who ultimately won more than than he did at Leeds but he should be included in in that group and he should be seen as one of, of that group even though he came to it late and and I get the feeling from from what I read about him and what I know about him that he was a very very dependable guy and, and the sort of player that, that Revy would have loved You do suspect maybe that as Moscow just touched on there that perhaps because it's the post Revy era and it's that transition from the late 70s through into the early 80s that he hasn't perhaps been given as much recognition over the years as perhaps a captain who's racked up an equal amount of appearances during a different era let's say well, the best time to come to Leeds, if you were not an, a kind of original Reavy boy, the lads who'd been sourced and signed right back when Reavy was taking over or in his early years, the best time to come was the, the mid to late 60s, as, as Mick Jones did and, and Alan Clark did. I think with Cherry, he, he was arriving not when Leeds were 100% on the way down, but it was at the point where the kind of rise was about to hit the top and drop over the other side. And in the end, you got to the point where you had Hunter leaving, you had Bremner going, you had the end of Jack Charlton's time, coming to the point where Leeds were no longer that team anymore and in the end and you know Moscow will, will know a bit more about this than me but he ran into that period Trevor Cherry and, and he captain leads in that period where it was a steady decline and it was the run towards Division 2 in, in the 1980s where Leeds just seemed to stagnate for what must have felt like forever um, in certain periods but again to come out of that period with your reputation intact and, and to be seen as a serious stalwart of the club despite the way that it went and despite the way that, that he was there at you know the point when they did drop out of the first division I think says a lot about him Yeah it's difficult to look back on players who were relegated at Leeds United and yet still hold them up as greats but the the team that went down was managed by Alan Clark who is still an absolute club legend and Eddie Gray and Trevor Cherry were on the pitch doing everything they could think of to keep Leeds United in Division 1 and just finding too much going on around them ultimately let them down and I think uh, looking at the way Eddie Gray then transitioned to player manager and manager and as uh, and then was Leeds United manager of a, of another relegation in the 2000s the the way they act during these times has possibly added um, to their stature at Leeds rather than taking it away. And that's probably a tribute to them as as people as much as anything else. Another week further on then, Phil. Where are we now in terms of the football resumption? It's all getting a wee bit messy by the looks of it. Getting very messy and at the same time potentially getting pretty close in, in terms of a return dependent as ever on the green light coming from, from Whitehall and, and from the government. I am starting to sense a pretty clear split now between Leagues 1 and 2 and the Championship and the Premier League. The, the real impetus and the real momentum for a return to behind-closed-doors games and, and as soon as possible is definitely there in, in the Premier League. There's the same interest and there's the same will in the Championship, perhaps more so in the Championship, actually, because you are starting to hear some dissenting voices from the top division and, and it is getting complex in terms of what clubs want and how clubs feel about neutral venues being used. And in terms of how safe everybody feels going back while the pandemic is, is very much still 
in full flow. But I think, given the choice, the the presiding view in both divisions would be that, yes, they should play the games and, yes, they should get them done. And if there is a framework for that to happen in the next couple of couple of months, then it should be taken. I spoke to a, an executive of a club, of a club in um, the lower two divisions earlier this week, and he said that, in his view, there is literally no chance of Leagues 1 and 2 being played to a conclusion now. And I know Rick Parry was in front of the Committee for Culture, Media and Sport earlier this week and was saying that, in an ideal world, he would still like to think that, that all three EFL divisions can be completed. But I find that very hard to see. And I think because he himself is setting July the 31st as, as the date whereby the season cannot go beyond. In other words, the games have got to be finished in full by that point. I don't think there's going to be a way to arrange enough matches um, across enough divisions to make sure that the Premier League to League Two um, are all complete. But I mean, at, at the moment, you still have the issue that at a medical level, there are clubs who are not convinced that they're ready to return, clubs who are not convinced that they should be returning. There was a letter sent, my, my colleague David Ornstein wrote about this, a letter sent from some of the Premier League medics to um, to the Premier League's medical advisor, Mark Gillette, um, and the director of football, Richard Garlick, which was raising a lot of concerns about how emergency services are going to cope um, with the number of games that need to be played, the risk of transmission, obviously, of the virus, um, suspicions as well that some clubs might not be following the guidelines in the, the real strict ways that they need to be and it continues to be intensely complex and of course in the background you've got the issue as well of televised games how these are going to be televised who's going to televise them whether Sky will take them all whether Sky will allow clubs to broadcast them themselves via iFollow and other channels to increase revenue and you do still have some resistance but I think there is that feeling and and one of the conversations that's, that's going on is that it, it isn't going away COVID-19 and the chances are that it's here now and it'll be here in three or four months time and at some point football's going to have to get back to, to playing games whether that's behind closed doors or, or in front of crowds and if it's not fine now then why will it be fine in, in three or four months time and I think there are a lot of people at Premier League level who are looking for clubs to bite the bullet but as ever you, you look towards Parliament and you look towards the government and that is they are going to have to own this that is where the, the thumbs up or the thumbs down is going to come from I'd like to get your take if I could Phil on the topic of the bottom six clubs in the Premier League who have objected to the season finishing with relegation now we spoke about this on our podcast earlier in the week and ultimately concluded that they're a great big bunch of crybabies who just want the money and the status quo. Can you disagree with that? No, not at all. Um, I think it's a valid argument to say that um, home advantage is, in a lot of cases, very, very useful. But I would question the, the value of home advantage if your stadium is empty. And I would question the value of it in circumstances that are completely different to what you're used to. I mean, I don't see neutral venues as being a, a huge hindrance particularly, but you can tell from the, the rhetoric that's coming from the bottom six clubs that they're, they're very opposed to it if there, if there are going to be consequences at the end of the season, very opposed to it if they are essentially hanging the, the Premier League survival on playing at, at grounds that they're not familiar with. But I cannot in any way see why the broadcaster Sky and, and BT Sport would accept Premier League games that are essentially dead rubbers. Now, if you look at the table, if you take out the relegation battle, you've already got the title sewn up. You could say that two of the other three remaining Champions League places are, are not, not certain, but but look like they're in fairly firm hands with uh, Manchester City and, and Leicester. So that leaves you, over the course of the remaining games, a battle for fourth place and a battle for fifth. And I have to say that I think as much as the government goes on about the country needing the return of live sport, and I don't disagree with that, I'm not seeing where swathes of interest is coming in who finishes fourth in the Premier League and who takes the, the automatic UEFA Cup spot. Um, so if, if the season is played to conclusion, there surely has to be relegation. And I'm not, I'm certain that that idea will have been floated, but the more we've dug into it, the more we've spoken about it, I'm not sure that that's really being considered as a credible option. And I think even if there are clubs who think that that would be the right way to go about it, the majority of the people are going to see it as self-serving and are going to see it as a pointless waste of time playing in the first place. And, and I think if there is to be no relegation, then you need to end the season here and now. But if it reaches the point where everybody has played 38 games, then absolutely three teams need to go down and that applies to the championship as well I don't think in the championship you can finish the season and not implement the, the promotions and relegations that should be there that, that surely has to be the way Another point to pick up on there you're saying that a lot of the top end is sewn up but there are still things to play for at that top end if only you know when you take into account prize money so the neutral ground is going to have exactly the same effect at the top of the division as it is at the bottom it's just that the bottom clubs don't want to get relegated because they want the money no, of course they don't. And yeah, I mean, you 
you would think you would sway towards the attitude that playing at neutral grounds is, as they always say, the same for everybody. Therefore, it ne- it should neither be an advantage nor a disadvantage. I mean, I- I've seen the quotes from Villa saying that they have a-, a lot of home games left. and But again, they would be home games without the, the 40,000 crowd that Villa Park pulls in. It- it's going to be completely empty. So what you're effectively saying is that there's a huge advantage to be had from the fact that you are familiar with the dressing room, that you know the run of the stadium, that it feels like home. And I'm I'm not entirely sure that, that I buy that. And more to the point, if they're going to oppose neutral venues on that basis, what is the alternative? Because it's not as if the coronavirus will be gone by August nicely in time for the start of next season. It's still going to be an issue and it could be an issue until the turn of the year, until you know further into to next year. So they're going to have to find a system whereby they're happy to play and play in a competitive sense. Otherwise, football is literally going to grind to a halt indefinitely. Um, and as I say, I, I think the idea of, of no relegation with a, a league that has played 38 games is a complete no-starter. I think that argument comes into play if the season ends now and the remaining games aren't played because, you know, in the case of Villa, they have a game in hand, which if they won, would take them out of the bottom three. And that is where it starts to become extremely complicated. But if they are going to play to the end, then yeah, three teams need to go down and, and three teams need to come up. And, and how you resolve the three teams that come up is, of course, a totally separate debate. And, and that's why this is, is so complex. But um, I think if clubs at the bottom of the Premier League try to keep the, the status on the basis that they're playing at neutral grounds, I, I don't think it will go down well. And I, I don't think there'll be enough support for that to happen. It feels a little bit like the neutral ground thing is the excuse being put out there right now. And if it wasn't that, they'd find some other way to try and argue for no relegation. Yeah, I don't think you're entirely wrong. And and I still can't tell how much enthusiasm there is within certain clubs to to play games. And and I think it stands to reason that if you're towards the bottom of of a division and the only thing at stake for you is your your status in a negative sense, then the idea of a a season being kiboshed here and now and everything staying as it is would appeal to you. I mean, if you look at League One, look at the state of Bolton in there, look at the state of Southend in there, you know, two clubs who, if the seasons were to be voided or if relegation was to be ruled out by the EFL, will be able to retain their status despite the fact that they have been woeful all season and have struggled to pay players and have had big financial issues. Issues and quite honestly deserve to, to go down. But then, of course, you, you have Leeds United, where actually there is this overwhelming wish to get the games going again and to play the season out. We spoke to Tyler Roberts earlier, and he said what Matthias Cleek said to us weeks and weeks ago, which is that we don't want to get promoted after 37 games, because if we do, you're always going to have that little asterisk of the season wasn't finished and it was done on points per game. Or, you know, it was it was done without the last nine games being completed. And I think they're very anxious that having come this far, and not just this season, but, you know, over the course of two years with Bielsa, to do it properly and, and to go out 46 matches as the team that topped the division or, or certainly finished top two. And I don't think the metrics and the algorithms are at all appealing um, to the players in the dressing room. But that said, when you get to board level and when you get behind the scenes at Leeds, they're absolutely ready to fight for promotion tooth and nail if it comes down to the point where no more games can be played. They're, they are adamant and you know it is very hard to argue against this that they've been one of the best two sides in the championship this season and that on merit, and to use UEFA's phrase, sporting merit, they should definitely, definitely go up. I saw you had an interesting um, tweet. It was in response to a guy who suggested this might be an option over the weekend because obviously now we've come off the back of the final weekend of the season and there was quite a lot of, um, I don't know, sad feeling, I think, knocking about in, in Leeds United Twitter world because um, the season end had, had come around and we weren't yet promoted, fingers crossed and all that. And you'd said, Phil, that you thought Leeds as a club, and I think you were right in saying this, want to be the ones who are dancing on the pitch at the end of the the season and sticking two fingers up to the rest of the football league and celebrating promotion that way. And it's impossible to argue against that. But I think there is probably a growing sense that if it is to be algorithm, whilst it will be devastating to miss the day, the occasion, because that's what Leeds really wants as a fan base, to be able to stick two fingers up at everyone and laugh at them because they'll be annoyed because we didn't finish the season. There's a case for that as well. There is, and and I, in no way would I ever suggest that it would be better not to be promoted this season in the hope that next season it can run to 46 games and and you get the you get the day of the pitch invasion and you get the days and days of drinking and partying afterwards, which we know 100% would have happened. You know, the city is is ready for that and and ready to go. It just feels unfortunate to me that. As it stands, there's, there's quite a, a high risk that promotion is going to be confirmed via an email from EFL Towers, which is not befitting at all of the the effort Bielsa has put in. It's not befitting of the effort the players have put in and, and also the way that, that they've 
kept it on track despite everything that happened at the end of last season and kept it on track despite the fact that being outstanding under Bielsa for two seasons is seriously, seriously difficult. I mean, he pushes them to the edge and he's taken himself to the edge in, in a lot of ways as well. And and I feel sorry for them. If I think back to 2010 and, and the promotion from League One, there, there was just a a huge sense of relief around that because it was a terrible league. There was nothing much to cling to in it anymore. And, you know, the, the club were 100% desperate to get out of it. And, it. and you know, in some respects, it's not so different now. But I think there's a lot more joy around the club and there's, there's a lot more satisfaction with the way it's been done. And I think a lot more admiration, certainly for, you know, the, the structure of the club and, and the way this has all been built. You know, you, you almost felt in League One that to an extent it was being done in spite of things that were going on in the background. Whereas these days it, it does feel that at every level they've they've just about got things right and they've made the, the most outstanding head coach's appointment they could have made. And I said in a piece, you know, they, they've gambled massively on Bielsa and on a much higher wage bill. And they did look this time like they were going to beat the house. And perhaps it doesn't matter and perhaps it's no big deal and, and you need to focus on the fact that they will have Premier League status. But I just wonder when everybody looks back in 10 years' time, how much we'll all regret the fact that the story didn't get the end that it should have had and that you don't get those moments that you remember forever. I mean, this week we've been writing about Bournemouth, you know, the Bournemouth win in 1990. And the piece we did focus very much on the violence round about it, so that the more negative aspect of what went on. But the supporters you speak to, some of them still say it's the best day they've ever had as a Leeds fan. It's the best memories, you know, being down there and of seeing Leeds go up that they've had at any stage. And, you know, I, I, I'm just, I am just sorry for people. I regret the fact that it's not going to be the same this time round. And even if it is behind closed doors, it won't be what it would have been had Ellen Road been packed out. And I, I know as well that there are players who feel the same. Just speaking of the structure of the club, if we go up uh, without playing any more games and if this next season starts as it appears it's going to be behind closed doors will we actually be in a stronger position than a lot of Premier League clubs because we'll be going up without the massive wage bill already in place and we'll we'll be able to be a bit more flexible maybe than a lot of the teams that are there and hamstrung with massive losses in things like commercial revenue and uh, the corporate hospitality and stuff Potentially yeah it's funny because the Premier League has a huge income but actually not that many clubs at that level are as cash rich or as profitable as you'd expect them to be. And and actually, one of the things that I think this has shone a light on is none of them are as profitable or as cash rich as they should be with the amount of income they've got. There will be expenditure for Leeds, so they're going to have to convert um, Helder Costa's loan into a permanent deal. They will want to convert Jack Harrison's loan and, and also, I think, take Ilan Meslier from Lorient. If they go up, they'll need to sign uh, Jean-Kevin Augustine, almost certainly. So you're talking about another big whack of cash there, plus the, the bonuses and the other expenditure, which is not inconsiderable. But then set against that, they obviously will have a wage bill that will be lower than, than I would think almost every club in the Premier League, although I would need to go through to check. But certainly a, a country mile below the biggest in that division. But they will need to recruit and they will need to sign players. They will need ultimately to be good enough to to stay up. And the one thing I think everybody has to bear in mind if the Premier League is going to expand next season to say to allow for promotion but but no relegation, which is, is one option, is that it wouldn't stay at a size of 23 or 22 clubs forever. You would almost certainly follow that up with an increased number of relegation places the following year, which is going to create a, a huge scramble at the bottom of the division. So they are going to have to invest they are going to have to spend money so whether there's any advantage to be had I'm not entirely sure and, and bear in mind that they are already a club who lose a lot of money and are, are heavily reliant on um, on Radrazani's loans but they will have planned for this and uh, not for COVID they will have planned for promotion and they will have ideas in the head of, of what they want to do and I'm not certain that the shutdown at the moment will hugely affect that. Returning to Bournemouth and a theme you touched on there Phil I do look back on the promotion from Division 2 to Division 1 uh, 30 years ago, more fondly perhaps a little bit than the title in 1992. I think to many people of that age who were around to witness it, that was kind of the cherry on the icing on top of the cake. But the cake itself, the important bit was getting out of uh, of Division 2 back into Division 1. And it was all brought to bear that day in Bournemouth, which I was trying to think this week about how I reflect on it because it is one of the most recent examples of absolutely shameful behaviour by large swathes of Leeds fans yet a day like you said then that I look back on so fondly I may be wrong but and and my kind of association with the club started in the early 2000s and you're going back an awful long way from there but it feels to me like Bournemouth was almost a, a line in the sand in terms of the incidents of really serious trouble that Leeds were involved in. Um, a couple of the fans that I spoke to for the piece that I wrote with um, my colleague Pete Rutzler, um, who covers Bournemouth for the Athletic, um, 
they said that the 1989-90 season was nothing like 84-85, for example, when there was just trouble all over the place and there were sanctions and, and there, were, there were just constant issues. But that if you looked at what went on down in Bournemouth, it was hard to separate that from the kind of worst nights or days of, of violence that, that Leeds had seen. But speaking to people who were involved in the club, I spoke to an MP called John Battle, who was um, the sitting Labour MP for Leeds West at the time. And he tried to make the point without defending you know any of the trouble down in Bournemouth that in the period beforehand, there had been quite an effort at Leeds to dampen down the reputation and to kind of ease the, the hostility of Ellen Road. They'd, obviously, the council had bought back the stadium, so they'd introduced the family stand. They tried to, to promote initiatives like that. And I think his feeling, he spoke up for the club in Parliament after the, the riots down south and, and said... You can't excuse the supporters and, and nobody should try to, the, the supporters who were involved in it. But it did feel as if Leeds as a club had, if not done all that they could, had at least put certain measures in place to try and prevent the size of crowd going that, that ultimately did. They'd they'd made people very aware that there were only a certain amount of tickets. They'd asked people not to travel. They'd put up Vinnie Jones and others to say, look, we want it to go off smoothly down there. We don't want to be coming home having to talk about violence and criminal damage and, and everything else. And they also created a kind of early form of beanback at various venues in the city. So there was that attempt to try and quell the huge travelling crowds that, that went to the south coast. But, you know, from speaking to everybody, it was apparent, I think, from a long way out that thousands were going to go to Bournemouth and there were going to be thousands down there who didn't have tickets and, and would not be able to get into the ground but but might try anyway. And and ultimately, that's that's what happened. And I'm interested from the perspective of all three of you to, to see how you look back on that, whether when you think about Bournemouth the way you think purely about the promotion or whether when you think about it, you kind of can't avoid thinking about the, the scenes that went on round about. I will say first, I think the genesis of the change at Leeds happened in the wake of the playoff final in 1987, the one at Birmingham where we lost to Charlton in extra time because Leeds fans started ripping the fences off at the front of the terrace that we were on and the fans behind started singing You're the Shit of Ellen Road. It's the first time I've seen Leeds fans turn en masse on the fans who were misbehaving. That to me, felt like a line in the sand. And then it was relatively quiet up to and including Birmingham, uh, Birmingham, Bournemouth, sorry. Bournemouth just felt like the imperfect storm, if you like, in that it was the bank holiday weekend. It was absolutely red hot. Leeds were going to be returning to the top division, you know, all things being equal. And I just think it was everything coming together on that day and that weekend, the timing and the weather and the club and the location, it all just fed into that one day of disorder or the weekend of disorder. As I was saying on our podcast earlier in the week, I mean, I was too young to remember this properly. My first, the first I knew of it was probably reading about it in copies of Square Ball, where there were it was a thing that was talked about years later, and the collection of headlines that had been put together in there of all the Leeds scum are back and and all that kind of thing. As someone who started going to games in the mid nineties, I almost find it hard to imagine because it was my era was the magnificent new family stand the all seating bits, the families being encouraged to go to games, the Premier League, it does feel, reading back on that article that Phil's written, it does feel like a completely different game to the one that I've watched. Yeah, there was a, a lot of that stuff had begun. Dan's rights had sort of dated to 87, 88. I mean, I was very young as well, but speaking to people, I interviewed Cess Pod, who came in in October 1988, that's joined the same month as community officer as um, Howard Wilkinson joined as manager and his job was to put a lot of the community effort into action. And there was, I think, a lot of the frustration from Leeds, the club, and from Leeds, the supporters as well, was that it had been self-policed by the fans. The movement against racism had been met with resistance by the club at first. They were angry. They were threatening copyright claims over the Leeds United logo being used on anti-racism flyers. But it became about a real movement of saying that the the people who were bringing National Front newspapers to Ellen Road weren't Leeds fans. They would get in a van and leave at kickoff and trying to make the point to, to the fans themselves that Leeds United fans were not racist. They were just being led in a, a direction that was nothing to do with, with football and nothing to do with them. And that was beginning to work. And then the club got on board with that a little bit more slowly. And then with Bournemouth in particular, they spent months, probably, I think it was from as soon as the fixture list came out, saying... That game shouldn't happen on that day for all the reasons that it ended up going wrong on that day. And it was the, the intransigence of the, 
the Football League and the FA refusing to listen to Leeds United, listen to Bournemouth, to listen to the police from both districts, from West Yorkshire and from, from Bournemouth itself, and then go, nope, nope, play that day, play that day. And then obviously the day was chaos, the weekend was chaos. And then so for months afterwards, it's like, right, well, we're going to have to hold an FA inquiry and we will punish Leeds United for it. And I think some of the exasperation, there's a great TV clip of uh, Leslie Silver responding to Bournemouth chairman's view that they should be fined. I think they wanted to fine them £400,000 because that's how much we'd, we'd spent on players. And uh, Leslie Silver's view was just like, well, well why 400000 fines? Why not fine us £4 million? You know, just make up figures, fine us whatever you want. And the feeling was that there was, there was not a lot Leeds could do about it. And one of the things that, obviously I wasn't there and I, I was, what would I have been, nine years old at the time, but something from the square ball at the time was actually written by a, a Bournemouth supporter who lived in Bournemouth. He said that, yeah, it was absolutely terrible weekend, but in the same newspapers that were reporting this carnage on the, the front page, they were also putting in the inside pages that there'd been a thousand people rioting outside of Raver, another town in the middle of nowhere, and that even after the Leeds fans had, had gone home, Bournemouth was not this sleepy village that Leeds fans had gone and raided. Every weekend there were dozens of people in hospital, there were fights everywhere. It was a, a seaside town at the end of the 1980s with mass unemployment, nothing to do, violence everywhere, drugs, homelessness, and it all came together on that weekend in a way that it was coming together probably in lots of towns up and down the country just without the concentration, the attention and the name of Leeds United put on it. So his remarks, was he said, um, this is a quote from his cycle, he said, I never want to go through another day like it, although it wasn't the nightmare that it was made out to be. Bournemouth will rejoice that they won't see Leeds again, but the majors and colonels in Bournemouth might one day realise it isn't just football that has the problem, and that in fact football hardly has a problem at all. And the dividing line between that incident and things that Michael remembers growing up, like the family stand and then Ellie the Elephant and uh, all the Premier League stuff, was not just a dividing line between that incident. It's the end of the 80s and the start of the 90s and probably the the last blowout of a of a decade that had been like that for 10 years. It's strange because they, you know, a lot of what went on down there was was disgraceful, and and I found it interesting that, that all of the sports we we spoke to, including your dad Dan, who travelled down there, said quite openly they were bang out of order. The supporters who were looting and and causing damage, and I think I think Dan's right that there were big problems in Bournemouth anyway. But the way it was seen was this city or this football club from Leeds decamping to the south coast, taking liberties, causing huge amounts of damage, and and moving out again. And and I think because it was so extreme and and because it was it all happened in such a short space of time, it, it definitely has never been forgiven or or forgotten. But in in a wider context, it was a kind of incredible social event. I mean, your dad spoke about driving through the night to get there and, you know, arriving really early morning, which seemed to be the, the plan of attack for a lot of people who went down to the game. And obviously you had, you had tickets for it. But he talked about getting to the beach and just seeing lines and lines of, of transit vans, bumper to bumper, fires on the beach where obviously by that point sports were starting to burn deck chairs and, and sea huts and, and everything else. But just already the sense that there were going to be so many people there that Bournemouth would, would not be ready for it. And so many people who, who had no tickets. And, you know, without any question... It was like nothing Dorset police had ever seen before. And we, we said in the piece, you know, they, they'd been in touch with West Yorkshire police prior to it. And West Yorkshire police had told them, you, you've got big problems coming. You know, there are a lot of people travelling. There are quite a few undesirables travelling. You're going to have to try and manage them as best you can. But ultimately, you're going to have trouble to deal with. And a common sort of refrain from the people who went, the people who had tickets, was that there were a hell of a lot of faces down there that they did not recognise. You know, people who are, who regularly went home and away and got to know the other people who travelled in the way that you do if you're a travelling fan. They recognised them, they saw them, it was the, the usual people. But around about, there were others that they'd never seen before um, and, and others that they couldn't have put a name to or, or even recognised the face. And, and we did hear the, the odd eyewitness account of 
Chelsea fans being involved or Millwall fans being involved, but it didn't seem wholly credible to us to, to be trying to lay the blame on, on others. I think Phil Woodhouse, Maverick White's member, had it right where he said, you, you just got the sense that every idiot in Leeds had thought we could have a bit of fun down in Bournemouth and we'll go for this weekend and, and we'll see what happens. And it doesn't surprise me at all that Bournemouth have found it hard to get over. It doesn't surprise me that they still hold a grudge. You, you'd have thought it might have softened over time because 30 years is a is a long stretch. But... um. The people we spoke to and the people who remember it still remember it clear as day and still find what, you know, when they think about it closely, quite traumatising what went on. My memories of it are quite hazy now as times pass, but I can just remember a general sense of kind of, it's that best way to describe it, I think, is, you know, the, the good thing about being a Leeds fan is when you go away, I think there's nothing quite like being in an away end because you feel almost untouchable to an extent. I think there's kind of a, there's always been a lawlessness about, Leeds fans when they've travelled but that's part of the attraction that's part of the thrill about being a Leeds fan you feel like a bit of an outsider like you're a bit of a, almost like a cult member or something like that and I think it was all those elements that kind of spilled over into like I said like this perfect storm in, in Bournemouth the sunshine and so much at stake and a bank holiday weekend and yeah let's like say transit vans are plenty on the seafront people are just driven down and just slept on the beach and that's what we found when we got there when we arrived in the early hours of that of that Saturday morning and and I can remember trying to get to the ground because we managed to get a taxi from the hotel over to the ground, but it dropping us some way short because of the sheer number of people that were there. And it was just just thousands and thousands and thousands of Leeds fans everywhere, but it just felt, it felt lawless. It felt like the Wild West. And I said to you, when I spoke to you for your article, Phil, about being in Kings Park, which is the area of, uh, it's not like a, a formal park. It's sort of a, bit, a little bit more like Round Day Park, if you're familiar with that in Leeds. It's just like big green open spaces, a lot of it. It was very dusty because of the heat and there's some scrubland around there. And it was, it was kind of like the Wild West a little bit with the police charging at groups of like shirtless young men. And then the Leeds fans would, would charge back and the police are trying to clear the car park and the Leeds fans all want to get to the turnstiles. And that was pretty much the story of the weekend. But set against that, some amazing memories. And what I remember is crying on the pitch on my dad's shoulders. I think it's probably the last time I could get on my dad's shoulders coming up for 12 years old, but being in tears of joy that Leeds had done it because all I'd ever known as a kid was Leeds being stuck in the uh, second division and we'd finally got out of it. So there was so much joy, but set against this kind of, yeah, lawless is the only word I can use to describe it. We felt uncontrollable, I think. Yeah, I would say on that, on the the balance of numbers is again something that's mentioned by this Bournemouth fan back in 1990 that the police had been reporting 6,000 fans, uh, Leeds fans in Bournemouth and then the Sun bumped that up to 15,000 fans were there and so make the point that if every single one of those people had been rioting and causing non-stop mayhem, there would have been nothing of Bournemouth left. If you unleash even 6,000 people to to riot their way through a, a town on a weekend, you're talking a, a war, whereas I think it was the, the two factors of kind of that Dan's bringing together. If it was a, a weekend that attracted the hardcore troublemakers that Leeds United well, pretty much all that season, they hadn't been seen at Leeds games. It had been a remarkably quiet year compared to the way the 1980s had gone. So they were certainly there and then uh, whoever else wanted to come because there was certainly that suspicion that, that people from outside the Leeds fan base had come along as well. But then you just built, put it in the midst of this atmosphere of people going there for a weekend-long party in an era when... This is a little bit after the, the height of rave culture when the proper outdoor events had started being closed down and police raids were kind of putting a stop to that and sending it legit into nightclubs. But that, that memory of how to go outdoors and party for a weekend was very fresh and real for a lot of people in 1990. So the attitude for a lot of people would be, this is going to be the best party ever and we'll just go outside and, and fuck the police. Whereas the attitude of um, a smaller element was that they will go there and they will fuck the police and fuck everybody else that, that comes in their, their way. And when you put the two together and try to police the whole thing with with not much way of distinguishing between, you know, who's just there to party and who's there to smash up every window and bar that they see, it just becomes general lawlessness. There were some stories of humanity in there, though, because we were in a sort of a mid-sized hotel. It was big enough to stage a wedding, and there was a wedding on, unluckily enough for the couple in question, that weekend. And it was two Bournemouth fans who were getting married. And because they shut all the pubs in town 
everything was closed. There was nowhere to get a drink and Leeds had just won promotion and you know, quite a lot of Leeds fans in our in our hotel. And the couple who got married invited people down to the hotel bar and said, come down to the reception and you can have a drink. And that's one of my sort of last memories of this entire occasion is being sat in this uh, this hotel basement bar at this wedding reception with these Leeds fans and all these Bournemouth fans who'd invited them in. The extent to which it had lingered only dawned on me when, well, I went there for the first time in 2007 and, and Leeds went back for the first time since the promotion in 1990 um, in 2007 as a League One club. They've been relegated, obviously, in the summer of, of 2007. And, and I remember as we started to approach the, the announcement of the EFL's fixtures, which always come just towards the end of June. Um, and, and once it was clear that Leeds were going to be playing in that league, one of the first stories that developed was the fact that Bournemouth were appealing to the authorities to ensure that the game would be a midweek match. You know, there was literally no possibility of Leeds travelling there on a Saturday or a Sunday or, or at any time which was going to facilitate a load of drinking or, or a load of fans staying in the city for an extended period. And I remember getting down to Dean Court for that. It was Tuesday evening and, and arriving there. It was cold November. So you know, one of those nights where you, you know, you're there for the football, but round about it, you're not expecting anything to happen other than people to turn up and, and go home. And being really surprised by the police presence and the number of officers who were on duty and Anyone who'd been at that game, Leeds won that comfortably, 1-3-1. One, one, one. But anyone who's there will remember that at the end of the game, they put a diagonal line of police officers with police dogs from one corner flag to the other, stretched right across in front of the, the away end. And you know the, the Leeds fans stood there and chanted, what a waste of money. And it was a waste of money. It was a, a strange overreaction for what was quite a small travelling support because Dean Court doesn't hold a, a huge numbers and you know on the way down again Phil Woodhouse was saying to me that their coach was stopped for no reason at all other than what had gone on in, in 1990 and a quite elderly officer came onto the the coach and, and you know told them in, in no uncertain terms that if there was any messing or, or any nonsense that there would be severe consequences and it really did leave you with the feeling that Nobody in Bournemouth had been able to let it go and and, it, and that it had been so bad or it had seeped into their psyche so much that, that even the presence of Leeds anywhere near them was enough to, to kind of change that, that reaction. And there was a supporter who, who spoke to my colleague Pete um, and, and in the end we didn't use these quotes, but he was saying, you know, I, I would be quite happy never to to share a division with Leeds again. You know, I, I hope we're never in, in the same league as them. And that despite the fact that, you know, in the period between 2007 and, and Bournemouth's promotion from the Championship, they did actually play a reasonable number of times and they played without any problems or, or without any apparent violence that was, was or arrest that was, was anything out of the ordinary. But it does linger down in Bournemouth and, and you can tell that in, you know, 20, 30 years, there'll still be people who remember how bad it was and, and how much they resent what went on. Leeds is Leeds. I think the... The reputation is always going to be with us. And Bournemouth is one of the things that kind of defines what the club's about. One of my favourite bits from around the, the time is, if you remember, Tony Wilson, who was the um, founder of Factory Records in the Hacienda nightclub and basically Mr Manchester, who after Bournemouth, he was talking about how you, you wouldn't get anybody in Manchester doing the kind of things that Leeds fans do because... Uh, because essentially ecstasy had turned everybody into fluffy, lovely people and uh, and taken the edge off. But he said, it hasn't taken the edge off it in Leeds, though, because it isn't there to take off in fucking Leeds, because they're all fucking psychopaths. I do believe there is a connection between what happened in Bournemouth and the fact that Leeds is the least hip city in Britain. Part three now, where we turn it over to you to decide what we should talk about. Three options on Phil's Twitter account every single week. This time it was, in third place, the Thorpe Arch buyback saga, which got just over 25% of the vote. Slightly higher on 25.8%, we got Gary Max Demise's boss. That came second. But the winner, by a clear margin, nearly half the vote, 49.1%, was The Hawk, David Hockaday. So um, tell us about that, Phil. What a joy. It was always going to be the hawk, wasn't it? I've been saying the last few weeks that we've had some unexpected winners from these polls, but not with this one. I kind of knew when I put that in that it was going to weigh in his favour because it, it probably is, without exception, the weirdest appointment I've ever seen at Leeds. And I suspect anybody has at any stage, certainly in, in modern times and, and since the, the Reeve era began. This started really with the... The night when finally Chilino and Brian McDermott decided that they were going to go their separate ways. I mean, to all intents and purposes, McDermott had already left the club. He, he was no longer in charge of the squad. He was no longer organising things like the retained list. His mother was very ill at the time, um, so he was down south 
looking after her and, and seeing her in, in hospital. And there was the whole Where's Brian thing from Chilino um, and, and little by little, just comments drip, 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 which made it clear that, that they couldn't work together. They weren't going to work together. And it did feel with McDermott like he was waiting for the sack from the very moment that Chilino kind of came in on, on Mad Friday. But in true Chilino and Leeds United fashion, the decision to... Um, part company with McDermott was taken and announced at about quarter past midnight one Friday night and and I was out drinking in York at the time so I I got this phone call from McDermott at at that time and I thought well this is strange so I answered the phone and and he just said look just just to say thanks you know thanks for working with you it's been enjoyable and everything else but to let you know I'm I'm leaving the club and it's been agreed and, and I'll no longer be manager so the next morning, I got up and started to write the, the sort of managerial obit that follows every single sack in McDermott's time, the, the good sides of it, the bad sides of it, why, why it all went wrong. And once that was done and filed, I got on to phoning around to start trying to find out who was going to be next, you know, who was going to replace him and, and who was going to be Chilino's first appointment as head coach. And, you know, certain names were put to you and fairly standard suggestions and people that you thought were names that even if they seemed unlikely were, were at least plausible. And then it got on to looking at the bookies' odds for the job. And, and as a rule, I tend to ignore bookmakers' odds because it takes very little money and very few bets for somebody to move from 5-1 to one against to 10-1 to one on. And what can look like somebody being nailed on for a job is actually just somebody somewhere having a punt and being about the only person that day who's put any money on the market. But sat in second place at five to two second favourite was David Hockaday. And, you know, not for the first time. I had to put his name into Google to work out who this was. It wasn't a name, and I don't know if this says something about my football knowledge, but it wasn't a name I was familiar with. And it wasn't a name I recognised as being either an established coach or an established manager anywhere. So it turned out that he'd he'd gone from Forest Green and, you know, he'd he'd been at Watford for a while, but ultimately seemed to fall a long way below the the standard or the, the... way below possessing the attributes of what you would expect a Leeds United manager to have in the championship. But a colleague of mine down towards Bristol had a number for him. So I phoned Hockaday on the Saturday afternoon and I said to him, you know, it's Phil Hay from the Yorkshire Evening Post. Um, you're very, very prominent in the betting for the, the Leeds United job. And I just want to know if it's something you've discussed with the club. I, I want to know whether you're aware of the possibility that you might be in the running for this. And, and all Hockaday said was, I really don't want to comment on that. To which I said, well, that sounds like a yes. You know, that sounds like, yes, you have had contact and you you are being considered for this. And he said, well, look, I I just don't want to comment. So we left it at that and he hung up. But it was that weird moment where you came away thinking, I don't know who this guy is and I don't really know anything about him. But actually, despite everything, there's a very serious chance that he is going to end up as Leeds United's manager. When you look at the range of bosses you've been uh, covering since you've been at Leeds, to have Hockaday and Bielsa within the space of just a few few years, Phil. How do you make sense of that in terms of what this club has done? It is bizarre and, and it is a massive juxtaposition, although you have to say as well that a lot has gone on in, in the interim and you've had the change of ownership and you've had you know substantial change to the outlook of the club and, and the way the club is run. And I think as well, an understanding of what you need, not only in English football, but, but also in the championship. And I think the thing that marks Hockaday out is that even the coaches that, struggled to make an impact at Leeds and even the coaches who don't look with hindsight like they they were ever going to be a success you guys like Paul Heckenbottom you Steve Evans you know even your your Uwe Roslers when you you look at how the the results go they all had credible records elsewhere so Heckenbottom had done good things with Barnsley Evans despite his lack of popularity had been good at certain clubs and had a record for promotions albeit not at that level particularly and Rosler obviously had had done well at Brentford had had good spells at, at Wigan so they were coaches who could legitimately stand up and say, look, I feel that I'm entitled to have a go at this job and actually I feel like I, I might have the aptitude to do it. But in Hockaday's case, he'd gone from Forest Green and, and there was very little in his resume that made you think that he was going to be suited to the job or more to the point that he was going to be able to stand up to the scrutiny that would be on him, not only because he was Leeds manager, but because he was coming in as this obscure figure who, as I recall, the big Daily Mail headline called him Mr. Nobody. You know, that was that was kind of the, the feeling about him. And I, I did feel at the time, and I, I do feel looking back, much as it would probably have made absolutely no difference to how he fared, that there was a, a bit of a lack of humility with him when it came to accepting that actually he did seem to have dropped into a chest of gold coins by getting that job. 
there was a question to be asked about how on earth it was that amongst all the available managers all, or all the managers that Chilino could have gone for, he, he had gone for Hockaday and, and even the story of how he landed on Hockaday kind of sums up the, you know, the way in which Chilino worked. Can I ask what you mean by a lack of humility? I felt it would have been a good idea from Hockaday's point of view to have said right at the outset, look, I can understand why people would be sceptical about me and this is a huge leap up for me and, you know, it's going to be a challenge. It's going to be really difficult. I am going to have to 100% prove myself in this because there will be people on the outside who are thinking, who is this guy? Why is he in the job? What on earth are his qualifications? And what makes Chilino think that he will... You know, he will do well here. I think I wrote the day when it was we'd broken the story that it was 100% going to be him and Junior Lewis. I'd done a piece saying, look, if this does pay off and, and if Hockaday is the man, then you can only conclude that Chilino knows a hell of a lot more about football than any of us because I couldn't really find a single voice who was willing to say, do you know what? Yeah, this looks like a pretty astute appointment. I think everybody just found it bizarre. But what I found with Hockaday was that there was more of a, an attitude from him of, do you know what? I deserve this. You know, I'm, I'm good enough for this. And, and while I didn't, I didn't have a problem with the confidence and while I think you had to bring a certain amount of arrogance to the to the gig I think he could have been more self-aware with the way he was being viewed by the city by us by people around the club as he came into a job which to be honest looked too big for him I mean that was my immediate reaction I thought what are they doing everything you've just said there echoes my feelings and I thought okay we'll give it a go you never know it might just work maybe he's a hidden gem but I was absolutely terrified I mean what about you Michael? Like Phil, when I first heard the name Dave Hockaday, I was thankfully, as it turned out, drinking. I was on, uh, on a stag do up in Edinburgh <laughs> with a load of other Leeds fans. And it was basically just a pub full of Leeds fans Googling Dave Hockaday and trying to work out what on earth was happening. It was one of those where, like when we appointed, I wouldn't claim to a brilliant knowledge of world football. So like when we appointed Thomas Christensen, for example, I'd never heard of him. But then you looked at his record, you're like, oh, okay, he's played in some decent places. Seems like he might have might have something about him. And, and likewise, you know, when, when you heard the name... Dave Hockaday that we've not heard of you thought well maybe he's someone like I don't know Paul Clement or someone who's been at maybe had been an assistant at some big clubs done some high profile stuff but you looked at Dave Hockaday and you looked at quite I mean not a bad playing career but a, a fairly indistinguished playing career mainly a fullback for Swindon then you looked at his managerial record which involved relegation battles with Forest Green and then you went to YouTube and the only clip available was Forest Green fans yelling abuse at him because they wanted him out of their club and the omens were not brilliant from that early point on and essentially nothing that went on from that right through to the the first time we actually heard him speak where it's probably unfair to say that he sounded a bit thick but he didn't sound like one of the game's great thinkers in that early press conference you just were left thinking what has Chilino seen in this guy my favorite moment from the the press conference was I mean it was mostly Chilino I think there was like big 20-minute stretches where Hockaday just sat there and certainly I don't think poor old Junior Lewis said a word, but in the midst of it all, answering a question about Ross McCormack, um, Hockaday was, uh, Cellino, sorry, was thumping the table saying that he, he knows Maradona and he knows Van Basten. He knows Rude Hullet personally. And I was thinking, well, if you know Rude Hullet personally, who who's this guy that you're sitting next to? I think that was the second interaction because they'd released the club's own LUTV interview with him before that, where Tom Kerwin tees up the very first question. And to be fair to Tom, he asks the question everybody is uh, is thinking, where it's kind of like, this is a surprise to everybody. It must be a, a surprise to you to be sitting here today as Leeds United manager. And Hockaday just kind of cocks his eyebrow and shrugs and smiles and gives absolutely no indication that any of this is any surprise to him whatsoever. And it was that moment, I made a gif of it at the time, because I knew from that moment this guy was not going to work. It just was not, you could not possibly make that leap from Forrest Green and being a nobody to sitting there as manager of Leeds United and going like, well, yep, who else did you expect? That's not going to work going into... One of all, oh, I've just remembered one of the other. I made quite a few gifts of uh, of Dave Hockaday, but one was of um, when the BBC came and they did like a football focus special, and they showed a, a training session where he's making some point about movement, and Luke Murphy is standing behind him, and Hockaday is kind of going backwards and forwards, showing how the ball should be moved. And then when he turns around to Luke Murphy, Murphy kind of, he snaps to attention and looks at him and just starts nodding. He's like, yeah, yeah, boss, been listening. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. And you could just tell these little bits of body, body language around the place. No, no. 
when you started talking about the press conference, I thought you were going to actually mention the bit in it. I can't remember the context of it, but when Chilino basically said that he would have got Gary McAllister, but Gary McAllister wasn't available. And you can see Chilino almost, he, he does like a, a, has a little word with himself where he kind of goes, oh, he's available. Hmm, right I, I, think, I think it was Adam Pope from Radio Leeds who pointed out, no, no, he is available and would, would have been quite interested. And it did seem as if there was a, a kind of penny dropping with, with Chilino. I mean, you, you're right that he dominated that press conference completely. Junior Lewis did get asked one question, but I think it was out of sympathy for the fact that nobody can sit at the top table through a press conference and say nothing. Out of courtesy, somebody had to ask him something and I forget what the question was and I don't think the answer was of any great merit. But Chilino eventually took his leave and walked out halfway through it and said, right, I'll, I'll leave you to it, at which point the question started to fly at Hockey Day. But, I mean, they met originally in a, a hotel in London and what Hockey Day would never tell us and what Chilino never divulged either was how it was that Hockey Day came onto his radar. I mean, we're told that he was recommended by an agent, but who that was and why that was, I'm, I'm not sure. But my understanding is that Hockey Day came to the hotel under the impression that he was going to be given or offered an academy job by Chilino, a, a job in the youth setup at Thorpe Arch. But they spoke for a long time, and, and at the end of it, Chilino decided that actually this guy can do what I need him to do with the first team. And, and the thing you should never forget about Chilino is that. He loves players and he, he does genuinely love good players and he likes looking for footballers and he likes signing footballers. But when it comes to coaches, he, he does have this view and I don't know whether he's changed since he, he left Leeds. I, I suspect not. But he has this view that they're literally there to manage the players and to pick a team and to make them run around cones and kick the ball about in, in training. And that it's almost like an admin job. It's just literally keeping the players in check, keeping them going and then you get to the weekend, you throw a team together, the team go out and play and, and the, everything is pretty much down to... The owner and the players who the the owner decides to sign, and in that period, and this is where I do sympathise with Hockaday, although he, you know, he obviously agreed to the remit, but he had little to no input or control over who was coming in. People might remember Niall Ranger rolling up in the away end, I think at Mansfield, when Leeds played down there, the famous Viviani night where Viviani came, saw and then went home as rapidly as he could. Hockaday, Niall Ranger was out without a club, he had checkered history. Hockaday thought that he'd be a decent signing, that he'd bring him in, that things would change, that, that he'd be useful. And Chilino just literally looked at the suggestion and said, you have to be joking. You know, he said, I've just, I've, don't even speak to me about this guy. He is not coming in. He's not who we want. So in the end, you had the influx of players from, from Italy and, and many from Europe that Hockey Day would have known very little about and, and a few from closer to home like Liam Cooper and, and Billy Sharp. But it was essentially a squad given to him, which fits in again to Chilino's mindset of your coaches there just to make the players run about at Thorpe Arch and, and then ultimately the players will, will do the business at the weekend. But the first time I heard Chilino express doubts was after you know, mid-August when um, Leeds were beaten 2-0 by Brighton at Ellen Road and he, and he phoned late at night as he, he was prone to doing and, and was saying I'm not sure about this guy. I'm not convinced. I don't think he's good enough. I, I don't think I should have appointed him. And I mean if, if ever there was a telltale sign that the axe was coming, that was it. And and from that point it was, unless it, there was a spectacular upturn of results on the hockey day which didn't seem likely and, and didn't happen, you knew that you were talking weeks probably at most before he would be getting cold from that job. Question on that, Phil. So he's phoning you late at night to tell you that he's got doubts about the manager. What purpose does that phone call serve for him? I don't know. I, I think there are times when he just needs to get off his chest what it is that he's thinking. And he is aware of the media and he is aware of media coverage. And I've never dealt with anybody more open in the sense of, I, I don't mean who always gives you chapter and verse in a truthful manner, but who is always, always willing to, to answer questions, always willing to take phone calls. And you ask him things and he will tell he, he will give you he will give you quotes. He will be quoted on it. He will tell you what he thinks or what he wants you to know. And and whether it's true or whether it's accurate is for you to go away and find out. But he was not a no comment owner at all. He in his own strange way he was very accessible. And I think it is just that thing of wanting to say to somebody, I don't think this is working. I don't think this is right. I, I don't think I should stick with him. And nothing I was going to say would have swayed him one way or the other. It was always going to be his decision but I think the best example of, of that is the game at Watford when it looked like Hockey Day was finished they lost 4-1 down there and Chilino had a lot of 
kind of hangers on in the early days. He had a lot of people round about them. And, and one of them texted me as I was driving home from Watford and said, look, Hockey Day's finished here. He said there'd been a lot of anger in the dressing room afterwards. Chilino is not happy. He's had enough of him. He's he's going to go. So I tweeted to that effect and we did a story saying, you know, it looks like Hockey Day will, will be sacked. And then on the Sunday, the next day, I tried to get in touch with Chilino, left him a message, nothing back until about five o'clock in, in the afternoon. When he phoned back and said, again, 100% on the record and quite happy to be quoted. He said, I did want to sack him yesterday and I, and I was ready to sack him. But then I woke up this morning and, and I thought, actually, am I just blaming him for my flaws? You know, is, is this actually my fault? And, and am, I, am I sacking him because I'm doing it as a diversion so that people don't criticise me? Or would I be sacking him because I think he deserves it? And he said, in the end, I've decided, you know what? He doesn't deserve it. So I'm going to keep him in place and he's going to stay as our manager. And I mean, if ever you are going to create a dead duck of a manager. That is 100% the way to do it, to say, look, I was basically fed up with this guy and, and sick of him to the point where I'd had enough. But actually, with a bit of reflection, I'm, we're just going to crack on and, and see what happens. And again, at that point, I said previously, you were thinking this will be done in weeks. I think at that point, you, you were thinking this will this will be done in days with Hockey Day. What's at the root of an appointment like that then, Phil? Is it an arrogance on Chilino's part that means he thinks he can put anybody into that job? Why does that come about? I do think that's the case. I, I, I think that was the issue with Hockaday was that it, in his head, he was going to construct this great squad, which obviously misjudged the, the strength of the championship pretty severely. But because of that, you know, all you needed was somebody who could be there to, to hold the fort and somebody who could be there to do the jobs that a manager and a coach has to do, but which pretty much comes down to making sure that you've got 11 players, the best 11 players ready to go and, and fit and tuned in for, for the weekend. And in a lot of ways, you could say that Bielsa is the absolute antithesis of that. You know, everything with him is about the coaching. Everything with him is about him. And I think the fact that a lot of us, me included, would look at Bielsa as arguably the best coach Leeds have had in our lifetime. And I don't think that's an exaggeration, despite what you saw under O'Leary and and Wilkinson. I think if you look at the cold, hard facts of what he's working with and, and how he's improved them, you, you can make that argument very, very credibly. It just goes to show that the importance of a head coach is, is absolute. And these days more than ever, I think. And it was very much at odds with the way everybody else was working, the idea that the players are most important and, and really the manager is a peripheral peripheral guy who can get, you know, who'll, who'll be paid 100 grand plus um, a year. But really, it's neither here nor there who he is or, or what he's doing. I just need him there to put out the cones when the cones need to be put out and, and to tidy them up again at the end of the session. And it was only really when we got round to, to Gary Monk in 2016 that there was finally this push towards having a manager who did have some semblance of control and, and did kind of dictate the way in which the squad was built and, and wasn't kind of subservient to this owner who was making all the decisions. It was only at that point that Leeds started to move on from that period. Does anybody know what Hockaday's up to now? Because he's disappeared off the radar. He hasn't stuck around in the upper echelons, has he? He was seen at a Leeds game not so long ago. I think it was at, at Bristol City. Um, and he does um, kids coaching down in Swindon, or, or he certainly did. But he's never rolled into a, a big job again. And I think it's quite unlikely that he will and um, the stories of, of what happened immediately after Hockey Day again kind of reveal the way in which Chilino for a very very brief time realised that he'd made this catastrophic error by taking this out there punt on somebody that he didn't know and, and nobody else knew because one of the first phone calls after that went to Steve Clark who Chilino was briefly very keen in but you know Fulham were interested in Clark I think he realised that he had better and, and safer options out there and the other name that came up was Paul Clement who at the time was at Real Madrid Somebody that Carlo Ancelotti knew extremely well and, and Cellino and, and Ancelotti had some form of relationship. So someone told me the story of, of Cellino getting Ancelotti on the phone in his office, talking to him about Clement. You know, I, I love this guy. This guy could be great for us. And Ancelotti saying to him, yeah, but his current wage is two million pounds net or two million euros net. You know, that is that is what he earns. That is what he's probably going to be looking for. End of conversation. And at that point, it was a case of, right, okay, tell you what, go and get Neil Redfern and we'll have him as caretaker while I have a think. Redfern got four games. In came Darko Milinic, another, again, Milinic with quite a credible background in the countries where he'd worked, particularly in Slovenia, but somebody who was going to be pretty sorely tested by the championship. And it was going down the route of, Redfern taking the, the job full-time to the end of the season and just providing the safe pair of hands that, that Chilino seemed unable to find anywhere else. Just to wrap up then, I want to get Michael and Moscow's feelings on what it was like 
sitting through Hockaday's demise and that Bradford game. Can you remember? How was that, that Bradford game? I suppose I, I feel in the end, I felt a little bit sorry for him, but the lack of humility in it, it was very hard to not just be delighted to see the back of him. Because for as much as, you know, Milinic didn't work out, you could at least see on paper why it might. Whereas with Hockaday, it was it was a case of what did you expect? This is oh, this was always going to happen. And signing Nicky or Jose was never going to be enough to save him. Yeah, it was it was time to end the experiment. There was there was that little bit where I think everybody did kind of feel after we got over the 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 first reactions to him and then pre season and you might want to stick um stick that pre season in a future Twitter poll to see if we could talk about the the trip to Italy to play the the waiters um and then play ourselves. But you did kind of wanna give him a chance and say, Okay, this is out there, this is crazy but all things crazy, just might work. By the time we'd got to the the Bradford game, I don't think anybody really would have complained if uh, Chilino had stuck with his original instinct of, of sacking him rather than waking up having an, an existential crisis. It had become very quickly apparent that it was not going to work and it needed shutting down as quickly as possible. And then I still remember the uh, the apology letter that Chilino put in the, the next programme saying that he would he would learn from this and nothing like it would ever happen again. The last conversation I remember having with Hockaday was the the press conference after the Bradford game. And it boiled down to the point where where I said to him and and asked him, what is anybody supposed to ask you after any defeat apart from, is the owner going to sack you? Because he's pretty much put that option on a plate and he's pretty much said to us that he was at that point last weekend. And if he was at that point last weekend, why isn't he going to be at that point after a defeat to a lower league side in in Bradford City? And he had no answer for that. And and you could tell that he really was just hanging on until the grim end. And, you know, it, it took about Probably about 15, 16 hours for the news to break the following day. But I, but we all went away from Valley Parade thinking that there's no way out of this one. You know, this this will be the end for him. I remember from that Valley Parade game as well, the image of him whispering to Junior Lewis covering his mouth as if maybe Bradford would have people watching the TV footage going out trying to get his latest hot tactical changes that he was going to be making. Still one of my proudest images I've made and I probably shouldn't be proud of it but it was of him doing exactly the same thing to Matt Smith who he'd, he'd called over to the side of the pit, pitch and was whispering something to him from behind his hand and I just wrote next to his mouth a, a speech but was saying Psst, Mike I have no idea what I'm doing perfect place to leave it Moscow Michael thank you Phil have a good one we look forward to next week's um, topic decided on your Twitter feed 90 day free trial for The Athletic if you go to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod there you can catch up with all uh, phil's stuff including that big long read on bournemouth we'll catch you next week thanks for listening see you in a bit the phil hay show 